0: so this morning, we're going to behold our God in his supremacy. And I can think of no better verses to be in then than Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. See, growing up for me, I grew up going to a church, but, but for me, God was akin to Santa Claus. He was like some sweet old grandfather that would help you out now and again. As so If you had a problem at school or something going on, you'd pray to him. And he would look back with his big beard and his rosy cheeks and maybe help you. Maybe not, but maybe help you as well. And so that was my whole image of what God was like. And yet the Bible teaches us far more than that. The Bible says some incredible things about the Lord. So the writer of Hebrews says, Man is destined to die once, and after that faces judgment. He then says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And later on, he says, God is a consuming fire. And the caution then that is attached to that is we should therefore worship him with reverence and awe. The God of the Bible is without doubt good. But quite clearly, he's not altogether safe. He's massive, he's supreme. He's great in each and every way. He's above and beyond us in each and every way. And So today I want us to behold these verses so that we may be blown away afresh by seeing God, not for who we think He may be, but for who He really is. Because that's what you see here in this vision from Isaiah. You see who He really is. And So we're going to read together from verse 1 to 8. These are the circumstances in which the prophet Isaiah was called. It's also a window through which we see the Lord. So let's pay attention to what we hear. This is God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, which is perfect and inspired and infallible and inerrant. Lord, I thank you that when we gather around this word, we don't just gather around a geography book or a history book or a story book. For as Calvin tells us, we owe to this word the same reverence we owe to you. Because in it we see you for who you really are. So, Lord, today as we stop and stare, oh Lord, would you open our eyes to your supremacy? Would you blow our minds? With who you really are. Would we not just stop and stare and then move on quickly? Would we stop and stare in awe that you are supreme? Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah sets the time frame for this divine encounter with the Lord, this divine vision before the Lord is taking place in the year that King Uzziah died that was an important year in the history of Israel. You see, we know that from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, that King Uzziah hasn't actually died yet. He's on his deathbed, but he hasn't actually died as of yet. It was in this year Isaiah was called, and this time frame for Israel was hugely significant. You see, Isaiah—sorry, uh, Uzziah, King Uzziah was without doubt one of the great kings of Israel. He was in the same order of David and Josiah and Hezekiah. He was one of the really main big guys of the period of time. And so you read this in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 about King Uzziah. It says, And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. And so he did for many, many years, for 42 years, of King Uzziah's life, he sought the Lord passionately. In all that he did, both for himself and in his country, they prospered. They prospered in incredible ways. I mean, Firstly and foremostly, he restored the nation's military power back to its prime under David. And so there became so many generals and so many heads of the fathers' houses, the main military men's of war, there was over 2,600 of them. And he restored the army back to over 307,000 people. They became a mighty armor force again. So they started to win all the wars yet again. And King Uzziah fitted all of his troops out with the best weaponry that money could buy and that skilled craftsmen could make. So they started to win all the time. They beat the Philistines. They pushed all the other nations back. They expanded the territorial boundaries back to where it had been under King David. And throughout this whole boundary, there was peace in this country. No one was attacking them. Because they knew they would die. So in the greater Israel, everybody was safe and everybody actually was also wealthy. His public projects were consistently successful. He built towers in Jerusalem. and He strengthened the city walls. He built cisterns in the desert. And worked out how they could actually get water to all the produce so it would grow in all the different places. They became wealthy under him. They became peaceful under him. They became mighty under him. And yet in the closing 10 years of King Uzziah's life, he grew complacent and proud. And the truth is, so did the people of God. They started to exchange the Creator for the created. They started to look around and they started to forget that this was all the Lord's doing and thought, look at what we've done. Look at what we've built. Look at how amazing we are. They grew complacent and they became proud proud. And the pinnacle of that is King Uzziah one day ran into the temple because he decided that as king he wanted to offer incense before the Lord. And so the Levites and the priests at this point are saying, Don't do this. This is our role. God has set us apart for this task. And he's like, No, just get out of my way. I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. And so they're begging him, Do not do this. This is not your role. And he said, just get out of my way. I'm going to go do this. I am the king. I can do what I want before the Lord. He starts to burn incense before the Lord and leprosy breaks out on his head. And for 10 years, he's slowly dying of leprosy. He's still ruling the country, but he's doing it from private of his bedroom and his palace. And so for the last 10 years of Uzziah's life, He was riddled with pride, riddled with complacency, and riddled with leprosy. And so in Isaiah 6, he has this vision, and the great king Uzziah lay dying on his deathbed. And for Israel, imagine it, for imagine it as the country. The country is going through great turmoil, great uncertainty, great anxiety, because they're aware our king is dying, the one who made us wealthy. The one who made us powerful, the one who made us mighty, he's going to die. So what's going to happen now? Well, they knew his son would take it on. His son Jotham would become king. But what was he going to be like? No one knew. And there was also whispers and rumblings that there was a new king in Assyria. And this king was an imperial king. And he had vowed when he took on his kingship to get everything back that they once owned. Meaning, they're coming after Israel. There is great anxiety, great fear rippling through the nation of Israel. And in that year when King Uzziah is lying on his deathbed and this uncertainty and anxiety comes into the nation, it was that year that Uzziah has this vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, the Lord, the Adonai, the sovereign one, the king of the nations. In the year that our king was dying, I saw another king, far greater king, the true king of kings and lord of lords. And then he starts telling us about him. And what we see would have changed their lives. What he saw changed his life. And what we see, I think, can change our lives because what he saw in that moment is truly mind-blowing as he views the Adonai, the Lord, the Sovereign One, the true King of the nations. There's three things then that I want to show you in this text about the Lord that I think really reveals His great supremacy. And here's the first. Number one, the true King... The Supreme King is totally set apart in His Majesty. He's totally set apart. There's none like him in His Majesty. Go verse one again. "In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You In know, 2013, and we had the joy of taking our family and kids back to the United Kingdom. One of the things we wanted to do during that time um, was really teach our kids some of the heritage that we actually come from because you don't tend to actually do that when you live in a place and then you leave and you think, we really should tell them more about the country we actually grew up in. And So we decided to go to Windsor Castle and see where the Queen lives. It's an incredible place. For over a thousand years, a monarch has lived in that castle in the United Kingdom just outside London in Windsor. And I'd never been in before, but as soon as I went in, I was like, man, this place, this is amazing in every way. I mean, you go in one room, and it is the banqueting room, and it is at least three times the length of this room, and down the entirety of the middle of the room is a table, down the whole length. And it's where all the heads of states, all the kings and queens from around the world will gather and have a meal with the queen when she wants to have a state banquet. And you're just in there and there's this room, the table is all the way all the way over and it is highly polished, golden chairs all around the the side. And on the roof, the roof is just filled with shields. And I'm like, what is that? And then you read on the wall that all these shields are the knights of the last thousand years that have been knighted uh, through the queen or the king at the time. And so all their shields, because they're all given a separate shield, are on the ceiling. It's incredible. Then you go in another room and it's just called the gold room and you quickly realise why it's called the gold room. Because everything's gold. I mean, literally everything. So you go in and it sort of takes your breath away a bit because everything in the room is, is golden and it just speaks of royalty and splendor um, and majesty. When in another room, it was the gift room. Gifts from all the way around the world that have been given to kings and queens over the last 1,000 years. And this room is just stuffed with all these things that are probably worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. But they're all gathered in this room. There's another room that's the war room. It hasn't got, like, guns in. It. It's got swords and shields of medieval times. And they're all just stacked up in piles in different places. This is all in her house. It's incredible. And then we went in this other room, and it was the coronation room. And on the wall, there was a big screen, and it was just playing over and over again the scene in 1953 when Queen Elizabeth II was being coronated, where she was becoming the Queen of England and therefore the Commonwealth. And it was pretty cool. I mean, she's got this huge crown on her head as she walks down the aisle to become queen. She's got this crown on her head and she's also got this scepter showing that she's the ruler. But what was so striking is as she takes her seat, there there are literally about 10, 12 page boys that come around to help her because her robe is massive. There's this long robe that goes behind her the whole time she walks. Well, here's the way robes work in monarchy and majesty. For hundreds and thousands of years, the point was, the longer the robe, the greater power you have. So the length of your robe told you something about this person's kingship or queenship or majesty. Well, look then at this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isn't that wonderful? No one could carry this. It was everywhere to be seen. There is no space where he is not supreme as king of kings and lord of lords. Revealed through the length of his robe. One day every king or queen that has ever lived will bow their knee to him as the true king. And he reveals that again and again and again to to Isaiah through the length of this robe. Wherever he looked, there it was. Such was his supremacy and majesty. And then we get to the seraphim, verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. You now Isaiah takes a lot of time at this moment to to talk about the anatomical structure of these angels. And you can kind of wonder why. Is this important detail about how many wings they have? Is this just a general knowledge fact in case we ever get asked in a pub quiz? I mean, what is happening here in this moment? Does it really matter? And it does matter. It matters a great deal. He's telling us very deliberately, because listen, when God makes creatures, He always makes creatures to fit the context of what they're going to be inhabiting. It's always thought he's done. So even though David Attenborough will tell you, oh, this is involved over millions of years. No, God made it that way, very deliberately. And so birds, they have feathers, they have light bones, they have wings because they are meant to inhabit the air. Fish have scales and fins and gills because they were designed by the Lord to inhabit water. And then we come to these seraphim. What we have to understand is they've been made for the inner sanctuary of God. They've been been made to stand in front of the unveiled glory of God, which is blazing away every minute of every day of every year. And these creatures have been designed to cope with that. And So they're given three sets of wings. With one pair of wings, they fly. See, again, in monarchy, the servants would stand behind the king or the queen. They would stand behind them. And the whole point is they stand behind them because if that king or queen wants something, they go. And here we see the seraphim standing behind the king of kings and lord of lords. And with two wings, they fly because if he wants them to go, they're going. They're totally under his command. With two other wings, they cover their feet. All the way through the Bible, feet are a part of our lowliness and creatureliness. And these creatures are in the presence of God and so they need to cover their creatureliness. Cover their loneliness. And with two sets of wings, they cover their faces. Because the unveiled blazing glory of God is blazing away every minute of every day of every year before them. And they need to cover their faces to manage that. I mean, just last week, there was the solar eclipse in the United States, right? As you saw, everybody on Facebook, I did, all my friends, they're there in their specs, their glasses. Or trying to just go like that to try to see. You know, that sun is is over 150 million kilometers away. And yet, we have our glasses on, otherwise our eyes will burn out in that moment, and we wouldn't cope with it. Well, these guys are before a king whose blaze is millions and millions and millions times stronger than the sun. And they're not millions of miles away. They're right there. So he gives them wings to cover their faces. Because he's aware without that they won't cope. They won't cope with his majesty. I mean, we see Moses in Exodus chapter 33. We see Moses begging the Lord, let me see you. Let me see your glory. And a few times God says to him, you can't, you can't, you won't be able to see me and live. And he's like, please, just let me see a bit. I want to do it. And eventually the Lord concedes and he says, listen, I will hide you in a cleft of a rock. And as I pass, you will just briefly see my back. And so Moses is all excited. The Lord passes. He peers out from the cleft of rock. He sees the glory of the Lord just in his back as he leaves. And then it says that when Moses returns to the people, everybody's like, whoa, what is up with your face? Because his face is radiating like the sun. So they make him a veil to cover his face up because he's glowing. Well, these guys aren't looking at the glory of God's back. They're looking at his face. They're looking at Him in His majesty. So He gives them wings appropriately to cover their feet and their creatureliness so that they can fly and be on service to Him and so that they can cover their eyes to cope with the glory of the Lord that is emanating from Him in this moment. And then one of them wonderfully calls to another. In verse 3 we read, And one called to another... I love the way this is so descriptive. And one called to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You know, there's something in this text that we could read and reread and reread and, and never quite get what, what the point really is. I mean, we get it that he's holy, but we would miss out on what is actually being done here. See, in the English language, if we want to really emphasize something, what do we do? We underline it, we put it in bold, we put an exclamation mark. Well, you don't do that in the Hebrew. You can't do that in the Hebrew. So what they do is they repeat things. And they usually repeat things twice. So truly, truly, I say to you. Or amen and amen. I really, really agree. Or you know, that several of the ways through the Old Testament, you just see them repeating words. There's only one time in the Bible that we have a repetition three times. In the Old Testament, it's here. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's called the Trisagion. It's a word that's repeated three times. And notice, they're not saying as they stand above this king, love, love, love. Grace, grace, grace. Powerful, powerful, powerful. No. Holy, holy, holy. Literally set apart. Set apart, set apart, set apart. That's who he is. In his supremacy, in his majesty, in his worthiness, in his greatness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it says in verse 4 what happens when one of them says that. It says, And the foundations of the threshold shook the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. I mean, what a vision! God is sitting on his throne, the robe, filling the temple. Angels covering their faces, covering their feet, but they're calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And as they do that, and as they cry out to one another, the very thresholds of the temple are beginning to quake. Such is their voice, and such is their greatness. I remember remember when I was a kid, I was still at school. I, w- I was born in Spaulding in Lincolnshire. The thing about Lincolnshire is it's totally flat. So all the RAF bases in are in Lincolnshire because you, don't, you tend to run into mountains, so you go where it's flat. Um, and I remember a time when I was at school and this, we could hear aircrafts coming over, but you hear that all the time. And then all of a sudden, we're sitting there halfway through English and it just goes, boom! And all the, all the windows are rattling, the floors are rattling, all that, all the school alarms go off, everybody's sent out, you're all standing in kids. And you're like, what? And everybody's talking, what was it? We assumed a bomb had gone off. I mean, it was massive, and it was hugely large. And then we heard through the teachers, look, there's been an accident with the RAF, they've already told us, um, they just went too fast. So that was a sonic boom. And that was a moment where that airplane reaches a point where it just blasts everything. It was a sonic boom. It was, probably, it was generally quite scary. You know, and you could feel everything moving. And, and you just think, this is incredible. Well, when these angels call to one another, that's what's happening. When these angels are calling to one another, holy, 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 everywhere is starting to shake. Such is the majesty of these angels. And yet these seraphim, these burning ones, are nothing compared to the one who is sitting on the throne because these very same seraphim that call out and cause this sonic boom have to cover their faces to be able to cope with him. Do you get the point? He is majestic. He is supreme. He is incredible in every way. He is the Lord of hosts. And so Isaiah stands before him. Oh my, this is the king. In the year that my king is dying and there is so much uncertainty, God gave me a vision of one greater. Who is the king? Who is the supreme king? Who is majestic overall? Whose robe fills the temple? I saw seraphim, they covered their eyes. I mean, don't get me wrong, when they called to one another, everywhere shook. But all attention was on the King, the true King, the Holy One of Israel. The true King, the Supreme King, is totally set apart in His majesty. And that's not all. Number two, the true King, the Supreme King, is totally set apart in His purity. See, it would appear when you get to verse 5 that the foundations of the thresholds weren't the only thing to be shaking in this moment. Isaiah was also shaking in this moment. Read verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In Old Testament times, prophets would announce two different messages or oracles to God's people. That's all they ever did. They'd either be an oracle of blessing or an oracle of doom. An oracle of blessing would start, Blessed are you. So blessed are you, Israel, if you do this, if you do that and the other. Or a oracle of doom. Woe are you if you do this. God will strike you down. It is an oracle of doom. And yet this is highly unusual. Because what he's doing in this moment is giving an oracle of doom on himself. Woe is me! This is too much for me! I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm sinful before the Lord. I'm overwhelmed! I am surely ruined! That's what he's saying in this moment. He is pronouncing an oracle of doom on himself because he is standing before the Holy One of Israel, who is morally pure in each and every way. And he's overwhelmed. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says this about the holiness of the Holy One of Israel. He says, we cannot grasp the divine holiness by thinking of something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. No. God's holiness stands apart. Unique. Unapproachable. And incomprehensible. My friends, God is completely set apart from sin. He knows no sin. That's why He burns so brightly. He is completely separate. Completely holy. From all sin. And so R.C. Sproul in his book, Holiness of God, explains then the fear and predicament that Isaiah is experiencing then in this moment as he encounters God. He says this, If ever there was a man of integrity, it was Isaiah ben Amos. He was a whole man, a together type of fellow. He was considered by his contemporaries as the most righteous man in the nation. He was respected as a paragon of virtue. That's Isaiah. But then he caught one sudden glimpse of a holy God, and in a brief second he was exposed, made naked beneath the gaze of the absolute standard of holiness. As long as Isaiah could compare himself to other mortals, he was able to sustain a lofty opinion of his own character. But the instant he measured himself by the ultimate standard, he was destroyed, morally and spiritually annihilated. He was undone. He came apart. His sense of integrity collapsed. Viewed by his contemporaries as a righteous man, but in this moment he stands before the Lord by a vision and his oracle is on himself Woe is me! I'm undone! I'm ruined! He would have been no doubt on his face by this point before the Lord. In hope, most likely, that the temple would collapse around him or somehow he would get out. As he stands before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the true King, the Supreme King, is totally set apart in his purity. And then there's one more thing, one more important thing we see in this text. Number three, the true King, the Supreme King, is totally set apart. In his love. See, look with me at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. My friends, as Isaiah trembled before the Lord in this moment, you must understand that in this moment, he was in a place that he shouldn't have been. King Uzziah tried to do the same thing. King Uzziah sought to go into the temple and stand before the Lord. And in a moment, God struck him down. And Uzziah knew full well, I shouldn't be here. I'm not a priest. I'm not a great high priest. I should not be in your presence. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm ruined here. He would have no doubt been wishing that the temple would close around him, that the ground would open up and consume him. He wants to do all he can in this moment to try and remove himself from the presence of God. He shouldn't be here. And yet it was the king, the Lord of hosts, that made the first move. As he instructed a seraphim, To restore Isaiah. He instructed a seraphim. To fly over to the altar. Which the seraphim does. Then proceeds to take a coal from the altar. And he touches Isaiah's lips with the coal. And he says very clearly in that moment. Behold this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin Isaiah. Your sin is atoned for. It was God that made the move. And herein is love. Because herein is a prophetic pointer to Calvary. See my friends, here in this moment, God, God sends forth his seraphim to Isaiah. God sends forth this angel to come to him. But it would be 743 years later that God would send forth His Son on the greatest rescue mission ever told, a mission towards which this call from the altar always pointed to. This call from the altar pointed to another sacrifice, one far greater, that would involve the sending of His Son. See, some 743 years later, from this moment, after the year the king Uzziah died, Romulus and Remus, two brothers, set up a village. And they called that village Rome. And that village became a town. And that town became a city. And that city became a nation that started to dominate in the world. And when they're at the absolute height of their power... They wanted to find an execution way for the worst of worst people. So they came up with this crazy idea. Oh no, let's crucify them. Let's put two lumps of wood together and from here on in we'll start to crucify people. That's only been a form of execution in a very narrow window in in all of history. And yet when they came up with that form of crucifixion, the hour had come. And God the Father then sent the Son on the greatest rescue mission ever told. He sent forth His Son who came to earth, lived a perfect life and then died in our place as a ransom bearer, as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And 743 years earlier, that's what the coal pointed to. One will come. One will come, Isaiah, who will atone you for your sin. One will come who will cover you. One will come who will impute his righteousness to you in such a way that you will stand in my presence. And you won't even need to cover your eyes because you will be holy like I'm holy. In the year that King Uzziah died, Romulus and Remus founded Rome. 743 years later, God sent forth His Son. That's what the call pointed to. And here in these verses, what it points to is how God is without doubt totally set apart in His love. My friends, I want to encourage you then. Behold your God in His supremacy. Don't domesticate Him. Don't just have him as a guy who, oh yeah, I love God, yeah, he's great, he sits in my car now and again, he's in the back seat, I go about my life. Don't let that even be in the same breath in your life. You see, the world doesn't revolve around us, it never does. God is not our accomplice in different tasks. He is seated on the throne, at the center of the world. We go around him. My friends, behold your God in His supremacy. Behold Him in His majesty. The King of kings and Lord of lords whose robe fills the temple. Behold the seraphim. They have to cover their faces before Him. Otherwise, they would surely have their eyes burned out in a moment. Behold that even when they talk to each other, the threshold begins to shake. But they're nothing compared to the King of kings and Lord of lords who sits on the throne. And be aware that just like Isaiah, in the natural, we shouldn't be there either. We have no business knowing God as Father and Friend and Redeemer. We have no business in that. But through the finished work of Jesus Christ, we can go be with Him. Would we never take that for granted? But when we do go be with Him, would we behold Him in His majesty? And would we behold him in his purity? And would we behold him in his love? And would we be blown away and delight in all that we see? What a great king, amen? What an incredible God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we stop and stare at you, oh my, it's overwhelming. Because woe is us before you. And yet as we sang earlier, you're not only a holy and righteous God. We're your sons and daughters. You've called our names. Lord, would you help us guard then against hearing that reality and therefore just taking that for granted as as if you're a Santa Claus figure in our lives. Oh no, would we be aware that we've been adopted by the king of Isaiah 6? That's our father, who sits on that throne with his robe filling the temple, such as your majesty and power and awesomeness and supremeness. And yet we gather around you as your children, before the most powerful father who has ever lived, you. So Lord, help us to behold you. Help us to never move on. And would we always delight in what we see. In Jesus' name, amen.